departed. We're going to finish up First Samuel today. Then we'll get into Second Samuel, of course, which will be primarily about David and his exploits. So that will be interesting for us. Uh, but remember, as we go through the Old Testament, we're laying the groundwork for the New. You know, without understanding what happened in the Old Testament, you really would struggle to understand the New. Um, and, and that's what's just so sad, because there are people who just kind of think that Christianity is just about Jesus coming down for our sins, but they have no idea of the depth of, of why this took place, of how the Lord brought this about. You know, all the things that are found in the Old Testament. And so we want, that's why, one of the reasons anyway, why we're running through, well, hopefully I'm running through it, but you're going through the Old Testament. <clears throat> in First Samuel, let's begin in chapter 30, if you want to stand and we'll read, I want to read just a few things in chapter 30 and 31, to kind of give us an idea of what's going on here. Remember that, it, that David had been gone to the Philistines and then sent back to be part of the battle. In the meantime, uh, the Amalekites came and carried off all his family and possessions, and the men were very upset, of course, and uh, he was talking about killing them. And then um, he uh, asked the Lord what to do, and the Lord tells him that it, that he can go and, and get his family back, that he will bless that. And then in verse 11, And they found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate, and they gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake, cake, two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread nor drunk water for three days and nights, three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? Where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, a servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick these three or three days ago. We had made a raid against an Ageb, of the uh, Cherethites, the Cherethites, and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negev of uh, Caleb, which is basically the wilderness the area. And we burned uh, Ziglag with fire. And David said to him, "Will you take me down to this band?" Of course, he so basically he said, "We're the I'm part of the party that, that raided your city." And he says. Swear to me by God that you will not kill me, nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this man. Of course, his master left him for dead, so he was in no hurry to go back with him. And so, uh, they, they went and they recovered all their stuff, they defeated uh, the Amalekites, and, uh, verse 21, David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David, and who had been left at the brook of Bezor, and they went out to meet David, and they, they basically left him with the baggage or supplies and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows, remember the ones who wanted to kill David, among the men that had gone out with David, because they didn't, said, because they did not go out with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that you have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children, and depart. And David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given it to our land, to our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is he who goes down into battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward. 
Um, and then in, in chapter one of second, or excuse me, chapter one, for, uh, chapter thirty-one, we here we find the death of Saul in battle. And I wanted to just read uh, the first few verses here. Now the Philistines sought against, fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And just we see here how that this all depends upon the Lord whether He wants Israel to win or not. In this case, He wanted Saul to die. So it was not going to go well. We always see how the battle belongs to the Lord uh, throughout the Old Testament. Do not. Verse 2, And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. And the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. So there we have uh, kind of a sad ending of 1 Samuel. Last week we saw our duty is not to direct the Lord in every aspect of our lives. It's an idea of that we need to pray uh, that, you know, everything that we want, everything's going on in the day, we got to pray about it uh, as if we are kind of directing God what to do and how to do it and, and all that. Uh, you know, and, and I'm not trying to make any rules about what you can pray about or should pray about, but what we need to be praying about is uh, that we would be able to handle Whatever the Lord would send our way, whatever the answers might be, how, whatever uh, goes on during the day, that that needs to be our focus. And uh, instead of uh, thinking that we pray about every little trivial thing, because at the end of the day, those things really don't matter anyway. As David experiences one of his greatest trials, we see him strengthen himself in the Lord. He is grieved, yes, but he doesn't just vent. He does something with his grief. He goes to the place that he needs to go in order to be able to find help in it. And of course, he goes to the, the Word of God. The truth of the Bible is what will give us the strength to endure. We've got to be very careful about being too mystical in the Christian faith. I'm thinking that, well, the Holy Spirit is going to just give me whatever strength I need. Now, on one level, that's absolutely true. The, the Holy Spirit will empower us and strengthen us and help us in our walk. But he does not do that, we might say, in a vacuum. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people who who stress so much the Holy Spirit don't stress the fuel that the Holy Spirit uses, which is to know God's Word. The Holy Spirit helps us apply God's Word. Yes, so he strengthens us, yes, but he does he doesn't just do it mystically, magically, in the sense that, well, I just empowered, I'm able to do it, the Lord gives me the right emotions or whatever. Well, yes, but it, it's based on truth. And uh, we just need to be careful that we don't forget that, that, that if we aren't strong in the Word, we will not be strong in the power of the Holy Spirit. Those two things go together, and unfortunately, I'm afraid that a lot of people, uh, groups, have missed that entirely. So we've seen how the Lord delivered David from being in the awkward situation of being part of the Philistine army, but it seems, as we saw last week, 
And as he comes, what does David do? It gives him assurance that he shall not die. Um, that uh, he will take care of him. So I don't you know, this is a unique picture of how we were. That's what we were. We were on the brink of hell, and the Lord brings us into uh, his service and to his family. Well, the next section is interesting, too, because um, David has just saved this poor sinner, and now we see him coming in judgment to those who have rebelled against him, who have come against him, these Amalekites, uh, to dishonor him. And uh, they're busy uh, living to excess, you know, taking what is not theirs and all this kind of thing. And David comes in judgment. So there's something about the judgment that we are reminded of here. I was uh, I thought of Luke, of Jude, to be 14 and 16. Now, Jude is a, is a great book in the sense that it's all about false teachers that were arising in the church in the early days of the church. And they were false teachers primarily because their teaching uh, caused people not to be holy, not to be godly, not to be God-fearers, but to live in excess, to, to give themselves to immorality, to give themselves to the excess of the flesh in some way. And that's always a sign of false teachers. And of course, it's to, to, to lead them away from Christ. And, and false teachers also usually uh, always, their teaching is always geared to... Uh, be their access to make money or whatever. And, uh, so all the times in the New Testament, like Second Peter and Jude in particular, that speak about false teachers, <clears throat> those are the, some of the common characteristics. And so it's interesting that Jude brings out some very harsh words concerning their judgment of these false teachers. Now this, of course, applies to anybody who's outside of Christ, but there's a, certainly those who would mislead God's people are uh, in for it, right? So it was about <clears throat> these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all the deeds, their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. You notice the emphasis on ungodliness. Um, and all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against them, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to the name. But this is a pretty strong language about these who um, would lead God's people into ungodliness and who were ungodly themselves. And uh, it made me think, men, about our book that we're reading through, uh, you know, which is dealing with false teachers, how the church is being led away in different ways even in our own day. Uh, he's dealt pretty uh, strongly with Robert Schuller and Joe Osteen, which I think fits the bill exactly uh, in, in what uh, we read here. And uh, there's coming judgment. We will answer for these things. And uh, so we need to be very careful about that. Um, and then it also reminds us that uh, those who so-called Christians who don't believe the Lord will return, and if He does, then He will not return in judgment. Even though clearly the New Testament over and over again says He will. Let alone would they believe that temporal things like hurricanes, floods, earthquakes, and so forth are temp- are judgments of God. 
Well, they need to start reading their Bibles, and they need to probably start using the word innocent so quickly, because that's what you hear so often, is that, well, these were innocent people. Well, there are no innocent people. Hasn't been since Adam. And uh, the Bible's very clear. to warn that, that someday we will answer for what we do on earth. And so, one last scene in this chapter, uh, we, we see this, uh, these, these men, when they get back to the ones who stayed behind, remember, they were too tired to go any further. They, they were not, they, they did not have the stamina that they needed to go into battle at that point. So David leaves them behind the baggage to guard the baggage, as it were. And these other guys, who, the ones who hated David, the same people who wanted to kill him, said, well, that, then you don't get any of the spoils. And David uh, says, no, it's not, it's not going to work that way. And it kind of reminds me, I, I, I think I brought up the uh, parable of the day laborers a couple of times here lately. But, it, it, I, you know, I, I see a parallel here. We're reminded that none of us have done anything that we weren't enabled to do by grace. These men, you know, weren't thinking about the fact that, well, God has given me the ability to go and do this. These these guys clearly did not have what it what was needed to continue on and fight. They would have been a hindrance. And but instead of reminding themselves that this is I am what I am by the grace of God. All of a sudden now, well, you didn't do as much as I do, so you don't get what I get. So it becomes this tit-for-tat thing like we saw with the day laborers. <clears throat> but in one sense, if some had been left behind to, be, to begin with at Ziklag, perhaps none of this would have even happened. But, you know, they didn't think about that. But uh, what we got to remember is that we're not all going to be involved in the conflict in the same way. Not everybody is going to be a teacher or a pastor. Not everybody is gifted to do this or to do that. But everybody has been gifted to help, to do their part in some way. And uh, so the supporting role is just as necessary. So David makes a statue. No, they did what they could. And so, in this case, guarding their stuff, which is not insignificant. And so everybody will share alike. And I think, again, it reminds us that uh, in the day of judgment, God's people, you will not be shorted just because you didn't, uh, you weren't a Charles Spurgeon or a Paul doesn't mean, and we'll, we'll bring out some of this in, in our uh, morning service as well in First Corinthians, that if we do everything, every moment of the day for the glory of God, and you say, well, I don't, or no, we don't, but we have the opportunity to, we're, we're to work on that. Which means that if we have the right attitude and goals, in every moment of the day, all those things are a blessing to the Lord and are eligible, we might say, for the reward. There's eternal consequences. So it doesn't matter whether you're standing up preaching or whether it's your home, you know, fixing a good meal for your family to uh, help your husband do his work to do the couple children, do their school, just whatever. Cleaning, out the toilets. If you're doing it because you want to do what's right and because you love your family, because you do all things to the Lord, it's going to receive reward. And that's just to be one of the great blessings of uh, what God has told us about the Christian life. When we fight for Christ, the fruit is not 
plunder we have recovered, but what the Lord has given us, because we haven't gotten anything that God hasn't given us. And that's the difference between grace and works, between worship and idolatry. The one who keeps before him that all he is and all he has is from the Lord will find on himself, will find himself on his knees, praising and thanking the Lord. And the alternative is to constantly compare yourself to others and be malcontent, to be a, to be a malcontent. And that's idolatry. Is Well, he's, he's not doing as much as I'm doing. He's not suffering as much as I'm suffering. That's not got nothing to do with anything. You know, because you're, if you're serving the Lord, you're, you're glad to do whatever you can in the kingdom of God. <clears throat> and uh, notice here then that these wicked and worthless fellows are sowing discord, and that again is something that we need to be very careful about. Because I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause division to create obstacles, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught and avoid this. Uh, uh, Philippians says, Brothers, join in me in imitating me and keep your eyes on those. So in both cases, mark those. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. So keep your eyes on us and mark those who are not like us. Their end is destruction. The God is rebelling and their glory and their shame. That's why he said, I look at things. So, you know, we are talking about Christians aren't to be judgmental. Well, there's, there's a right way to think about that, but Christians are to be discerning. When you recognize someone who always sows discord, who's not edifying God's people, but seems to always be causing problems in the church, uh, you can't just close your eyes to that in supposed Christian love, right? Uh, there's, there's, something's going on. Need to be mindful of. So God has not gifted these men to do what others can do, uh, and they. Uh, it's it's not our job to go around and start pointing that out and to uh, in the local church, but to say, look, um, God's given us each one of us the gifts that He wants us to have, and that's okay. <clears throat> um. And it would be good, perhaps, for wives and mothers to get hold of this. Uh, you know, we all need it. Okay, don't get me wrong here. <clears throat> but staying at home with the children is not just a supporting role to the husband. Uh, as if somehow that's as unfulfilling or not as important as whatever your husband might be doing if, if he's working and you're not. Uh, and we're seeing the extreme importance of, of, of children who are raised in a loving home, who have a mother who takes care of them. Uh, uh, if, 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 I think in, certainly in today's world, how important it is for a mother to teach the children at home and not give them to the world to uh, teach that which is evil. Non-biblical worldview. How the damage is done to society. We see this all around us. Kids who have uh, don't know who their some of their real parents even are. Who have multiple fathers, multiple mothers because of all the intermarrying and divorcing and so forth that's going on. Kids who uh, 
don't eat well, who aren't trained well, all because we're leaving them to be raised by the world, by the schools or by the nannies or whoever. And so let's not underplay the importance, the important role of staying at home. Uh, if we're being faithful, no one's job is more important than anyone else's. And as important as obviously providing for the family is raising those children to know God, to know the Word of God, is easily as important, if not in some cases more. And remember too, these people that were left behind were not being lazy. They were unable because of their of God's gifts. So that's a big difference there. And uh, so you need to be careful here um, that in husbands don't don't put pressure on your wife to be well, we need you to work so that we can live like everybody else and uh and if that ruins our kids, so what? You know no husband no, no, father would say that, but I've seen it where it was much more important that you, that, that wife work so that we can live like everybody else around us, and so the kids immediately get shoved off to a public school or, or, or just uh, suffer because of it, whether it's public school or not, and, and, and they go, well, what, where's your priorities here? Let's, let's just think about this. Um, and again, there's biblical precedent here too. We want to remind ourselves. I know that nobody wants to hear this in, in our day and age, but you know, I don't care. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Uh, this is a little bit along with what we're going to talk about in, in the uh, morning message too, where Paul is going to say, look. My, I have fought through my life. I don't just live my life haphazardly. Older women, perhaps your husband's dead, you're, you're, you're not, you know, your children are grown, you've got more time. Be careful that you don't think, well, you know, it's kind of like retirement now. I, I sit around, I'm, I'm drinking wine all day, I'm, I'm uh, you know, gossiping. Uh, I, in other words, I have all of a sudden made an excuse for I don't have to think about life. I don't need to take life seriously anymore. No, not slanderers, slaves too much wine. They are to teach what is good. You have a responsibility as long as we have breath in our life, breath in our body, we're alive, to do what we can. I don't care how old you are, right? And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. This is not just a duty then to the older ladies, but a duty also to the younger. And this would apply obviously to men in the same way. The duty to listen to your elders, to be, to those who have gone before you, when they offer advice, to think, well, uh, they're old, they, they, you know, that, that we don't live in the same time period, that they're senile, whatever. No, they maybe have something to say that you, that would save you from going through perhaps some things they have to go through, right? So take it seriously. You have a duty to teach, you have a duty to listen. To be self-control. So, to train the young women to, to what? Love their husbands and children. And, and, and to love them biblically. Everybody, most everybody loves their husbands and children. But there's not as many actually carry that through in the way that they live with them. Part of that is to be self-controlled, pure, working at home. Oh, that's something that's 
pride and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And again, with, because we live, I feel, from the Southern Baptist this morning, which, you know, everybody understands that, that there's a bad kid out there that everything has got to be 50-50 in the marriage, that uh, what, what the husband does, the wife can do, that's complete splitting of all the chores, all the uh, responsibilities. You can't have that. You've got to have some that do some things and some others that do others. The woman, uh, the, the married woman's fear, first of all, is to be a keeper of the home. And then you go from there. And, and again, that's just the way the Bible is revealed to us, and I don't apologize for that. And, you know, it's so obvious by what's going on in our own culture that how much of that is the result of just completely ignoring Scripture uh, that uh, I, I, I feel like I had no reason to say it for that reason alone. So, David takes some of the spoils, and he also gives it to some of the elders in Judah, and it spreads the wealth. He's building relationships. He understands that it's not just about him. It's about God's people. It's about serving them. And uh, so he's working on relationships, and it's something certainly we can take to heart. And uh, he's certainly, uh, the Lord has blessed him, and he's become a source of blessings to others. Well, let's quickly just deal with chapter 31. Here we see the end of Saul. We kind of knew it was coming for all of Saul's victories. And, and in the end, he really has made no difference in the work of the Lord. Israel is no better off for him being king. You might say it's even worse off. It's certainly no better off. Um, he has, of course, been doing just what God wanted him to do to further the Lord's purposes. But it's been done in rebellion. And so it bears no fruit. God's work is going to get done. But if we're not serving the Lord, we're doing something. And the Lord, nothing's happening apart from the Lord's will. But if we're serving in rebellion, if we're serving just by looking after our own interests, then that's not going to bear any fruit for us. There's no reward in that. Saul lived his life. He accomplished what the Lord wanted him to accomplish in his life. And I believe he died and went to hell and got nothing for it. And certainly that would apply at least to anyone who is not saved. Yet you die a miserable death. He's brought death upon his sons. Uh, and uh, he's got nothing to show for it. And, and, of course, and then on top of that, um, well, it's like the, the lost person who there's a lot of lost people who have done great things. You know, we're not arguing that. Built cities, great art. Perhaps it's been done. Humanitarian efforts in some cases. You know, lost people do some pretty amazing things. But the problem is, at best, all you've done is perhaps the, the best you can hope for is you, the Lord has used that to serve his people's interest in some way. You know, think about the, the, the great uh, economies, perhaps, that we, that we have enjoyed right now with our believe well, compared to a lot of places, it's still a great economy. A lot of lost people have been part of that, and, and, it, and the church 
Christians are served to that, but the problem is the people who did it, if you're lost, you're leaving it all behind. You, it, it hasn't done you any good. So I've talked about how that even the most insignificant thing that we do, if we do it for the right reason, gains reward, the greatest thing the lost person can do uh, will bring nothing but condemnation because he's done it in uh, idolatry. He's done it in sin. He's in rebellion. So again, is this something to think about? It's something we should always have it in our minds. <clears throat> and then, to make matters worse, Saul ends up killing himself. And it's interesting, uh, it's, it, uh, suicide is it, only mentioned in a very few times in Scripture, but it's kind of like multiple marriages. Notice that it's there. Now, there's other reasons why I think the Bible teaches that that's not right, but one of the ways it does that is that every time you read about it, it's always uh, never good. Uh, the guy's never happy, and, you know, and, and no one's always happy, right? Well, it's the same with, uh, I think, suicide in God, uh, in the Bible. Who, who uh, can name, I think there's seven times suicide is mentioned in the Bible. See for the name of all. Uh, no, let's, yeah, I think that we'll, we won't count Jonah. I'm not going to count today anyway. Judas. Samson, remember, he killed himself. That's the only time you might say where it, 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 uh, if you don't see the, the suicide in Scripture as a ultimate act of rebellion against, against God's will. Because Samson, whether he should have killed himself or not, you know, we'll leave that to the Lord. But in, he did so in bringing death upon in, it, so uh, Israel's enemies, and so you know, it, not, it's probably a little bit different than all the rest of them. Perhaps Abimelech back in Judges. Abimelech was the uh, one of the sons of uh, Gideon, I think, who uh, he was uh, took upon himself leadership. Remember, a woman threw a millstone out the window, dropped on his head, and said he asked someone to kill him because he didn't want to die right with his hand. And that's a case of suicide. Saw then, of course, Saul's armor bearer. Saul kills himself, his armor bearer, for whatever reason, goes ahead and kills himself as well. Two, two others that probably might not have to Ahithophel, he was a counselor, we'll see this, of uh, Absalom, I believe it was, and when uh, his, or may, I think it might have been David, but then later Absalom, either way, at some point he gives advice, it's not taken, and he gets a full of himself, he kills himself because his advice wasn't taken. And then Zimri, who was a illegitimate king of northern Israel, who reigned for, I think, just a day or so, or a week at the most, and uh, he kills himself. And it's kind of, this is, this, that's just very sad. You don't read about suicide in any good way in Scripture. <clears throat> and so that's how Saul ends up. And again, uh, why, well, just one more reason why I really don't consider him to be a believer, but if we just want to, in passing, remind ourselves then that suicide is not an option for a Christian. Now, whether it's okay to take a cyanide pill in, in the course of espionage and fighting for your country, I, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not making any comment about that one way or another. But I'm talking about the normal, what we think about suicide, 
where <clears throat> you don't like what's going on, so that's your easy way out. That that couldn't be a more ungodly uh, thing. And I'm not saying I know it, but I know Christians who have done that. Christians who have been sick and, and knew their days were numbered. I know a preacher who, great preacher back in the '60s, that time period, <clears throat> uh, just had a <clears throat> big ministry. Blew his brains out one day because he was dying. And, you know, everybody is like, how could that happen? But, you know, we, we all can do whatever. So, you know, it just reminds us that we're all sinners. But notice here, just in passing, that Jonathan dies here as well. He's listed as one of Saul's sons. And I've made much about Jonathan, I believe, to be a great servant of the Lord. And yet here he dies rather unceremoniously, right? And I think the point to remember is that our reward comes after death. Jonathan is like those, I think, who stayed behind with the baggage. This is what the Lord needed him to do. Jonathan was a supporting character to David. That that was it. And and once it was time for David to be king, the Lord removed Jonathan. And yet Jonathan has done nothing wrong. Jonathan has been faithful. There's nothing bad said about Jonathan. And it's just good for us to remember that when our work is done, the Lord's going to take us home. And, if, and, and it doesn't matter whether we have the fame or the ministry that somebody else did. <clears throat> so it's not a tragic ending for Jonathan. It, you know, nobody wants to die in battle. <clears throat> but it can't be tragic to die like that if we have been faithful to serve the Lord. That, that's the point. Remember, we see this over and over again in this section. It is tragic to lay aside the kingdom that you cannot, uh, that, that cannot last to gain the kingdom that will last forever. No, it can't be tragic. So even to die young, you know, Robert Murray McShane died when he was 29, yet he, he wrote a lot of uh, great songs. Uh, he was a great preacher. He, most of his impact in his life was after he died. But, you know, that's the Lord's business. So we, we kind of finish here in, in first second in first Samuel, we kind of reach a low point. The, the Philistines are rejoicing. Um, they take uh the head of Saul and his sons and they hang them on a uh wall there for everybody to see. Uh and the, the uh, Israel is on the run. But we know that soon this is all gonna change and as the Lord's gonna come with the deliverer all this, but this is how things are right now. Then we finish in verse 11 where uh, when they had hung the uh, Philistines had found Saul and his sons, they, they cut off their head and uh, they uh, uh, put the armor in the temple of Ashtoreth and they fastened his body to the wall at Bethlehem. They carried this good news to the people. They basically, in, in, in taking the armor to the, uh, to the temple, they're giving the credit to their gods over the true God, right? Which is what happens when we miserably fail with the Lord. When, when we're defeated before the world, the world has cause to to, uh, to denounce. We, we made a, ba- a bad name for the Savior. No, by that, I don't mean when we, you know, lose our job or, you know, I'm talking about when we don't, when we don't 
men from Jabesh Gilead um, went by the night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his three sons off the wall and they gave them a burial. And uh, that's there because, remember, Jabesh was one of the few places where Saul did well. Remember when uh, Nahash was at surround the city and said, look, surrender or, and if you do, I will just pop out the right eye of every man and uh, they sent word to Saul, and Saul came and delivered them. So that's why these men, you know, who, who were thankful for that, you know, had some special place for Saul because of that. They came and they took their bodies off the wall. Well, the next scene will be at the battlefield, where uh, they, this, this Amalekite goes and finds the body of Saul, and he takes uh, Saul's uh, armor, some of his things, and David tell him what happened. And he'd say, well, why is that in say for Second Samuel. Well, I think because at that point David becomes a central figure, so this is a, perp, a good way to uh, divide the books. Remember, First and Second Samuel were originally just one book, just as First and Second Kings were originally one book, uh, as well as I think First and Second Chronicles, but they were divided for space sake and whatever reason. Um, but David will be now take over and become the good shepherd that Saul never was. So we see the beginning of this in chapter one of Second Samuel. According to Jewish tradition, uh, as I said, well, all these books were one book. Uh, you say, well, how did Samuel write all of First Samuel, which has already been dead here, and then certainly not Second Samuel? Well, Jewish tradition says that prophets Gad and Nathan also contributed to these books. Uh, they will be mentioned in 2 Samuel as being alive, of course, during David's reign. Of course, Nathan the prophet we are familiar with, and Gad as well. And so together, those three prophets in all likelihood are the ones who wrote these books. Any questions? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love to us this day. We ask Lord your blessings upon us that um, you would uh, minister the word of God to us. May the Spirit take it and build us up in the faith. May we appreciate even 